If you don't come and discover God's will and God's word and pattern and shape your thinking after it, you will be shaped by the age in which you live. Every thought, every idea, every philosophy that has moral overtones ultimately traces back to either God or Satan. There's no neutral territory. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. Hello again, I'm Bill Wright, and Tom is continuing his current series titled, Your Only Reasonable Response to the Gospel. He has part seven for you on today's broadcast. Today, Tom will continue to explore Romans 12, verses one through two, by introducing us to an unfamiliar concept, obscurantism, the church taking the scripture and oppressing those who have come to new understandings of the truth. Obscurantism has caused some to deny and oppress scientific discovery, sanction American slavery, and to oppose women's suffrage and civil rights. So how can we keep from being conformed to the mindset of the age and yet avoid this danger of obscurantism. What does it look like for a believer to live according to Scripture in today's world? How are believers meant to view science and the Christian faith? Let's open our Bibles and join our teacher now on The Word Unleashed. Romans chapter 12. Last time we examined together the command in Romans chapter 12 verse 2, not to be conformed to the mindset of the age. Sadly, throughout church history, people connected to Christianity and sadly even some genuine believers have misunderstood that command and even misapplied it. And their misunderstanding has even produced, and this may not be a word you're familiar with, I'll define it, obscurantism. Obscurantism. What is that? Well, Webster defines obscurantism as the opposition to the increase and spread of knowledge, especially new ideas. It is the squelching of anything new. And so some in the church have read this, don't be conformed to the age, as if they needed to be opposed to any new idea that came along, particularly scientifically. History's most famous example involves the conflict between the Roman Catholic Church and the astronomer Galileo. I remember reading fascinating article back in October of 1992 that was written in the New York Times. The article was entitled, After 350 Years, Vatican Says Galileo, Galileo Was Right, It Moves. Wow, took them a while. The article says this, more than 350 years after the Roman Catholic Church condemned Galileo, Pope John Paul II is poised to rectify one of the church's most infamous wrongs, the persecution of the Italian astronomer and physicist for proving the earth moves around the sun. With a formal statement at the Pontifical Academy of Sciences on Saturday, again, this was back in 1992, Vatican officials said the Pope will formally close Listen to this, a 13-year investigation, really? It took 13 years? 13-year investigation into the church's condemnation of Galileo in 1633. The condemnation, which forced the astronomer and physicist to recant his discoveries, led to Galileo's house arrest 
for eight years before his death in 1642 at the age of 77. Of course, the contest between the two models, the Ptolemaic's idea that everything revolved around the earth and the Copernican idea, those were merely theories until, until this Galileo made his first observations of the four largest moons of Jupiter, which exploded the Ptolemaic idea that all heavenly bodies orbited the earth. That in 1616, the, the Copernican view was declared heretical because it refuted a strict biblical interpretation of the creation that God fixed the earth upon its foundation not to be moved forever. When in 1632, Galileo published his findings, he endorsed the Copernican system. As a result, the article goes on to say, Galileo was summoned to Rome for trial by the Inquisition one year later. Galileo defended himself by saying that scientific research and the Christian faith were not mutually exclusive and that study of the natural world would promote understanding and interpretation of the Scriptures. But his views were judged false and erroneous. Aging, ailing, and threatened with torture by the Inquisition, Galileo recanted on April 30, 1633. Because of his advanced years, he was permitted house arrest in Siena for the remaining eight years of his life. And then the article ends with this line. I love this. Legend has it that as Galileo rose from kneeling before his inquisitors, he murmured, even so, it does move. <laughs> That's obscurantism. It is the oppression of information out of the desire to keep traditional interpretations in place. Obscurantism also caused some to sanction American slavery, to oppose women's suffrage and civil rights. And just yesterday, I'm not making this up, I have a photo to prove it, just yesterday there were a couple of protesters at ICR over in Dallas def defending a flat earth. So how can we keep from being conformed to the mindset of our age on the one hand and yet avoiding the obvious danger of obscurantism on the other? I think there's only one way, and that is by insisting that both what we believe and what we reject are clearly taught in Scripture using only the grammatical historical method of interpretation. Take, for example, if you interpret the two poetic passages that the Roman Catholic Church used to condemn Galileo, and you use the purely grammatical historical method, you don't arrive at their conclusions. Listen to the two verses they used to say that everything needs to revolve around the earth. The first one was Psalm 93, verse 1. The Lord has clothed and girded Himself with strength. Indeed, the world is firmly established. It will not be moved. There is no way you get from that verse in a normal, literal interpretation to everything revolves around the earth. The other one was Psalm 104, verse 5. He established the earth upon its foundations so that it will not totter forever and ever. Again, a normal, grammatical, historical interpretation of that poetic passage doesn't lead you to the, the Ptolemaic system. So what was really happening is they were clinging to a traditional view and they were trying to stick some verses in there to support their traditional view. That's where the danger comes. 
uh, when you consider the attempt to justify American slavery. You quickly discover that the Old Testament in Exodus 21.16 and the New Testament in 1 Timothy 1.10 explicitly condemn kidnapping in order to make anyone a slave. In fact, under Old Testament law, to do so was a capital offense. So we must always step back from what even the Christian world is saying and ask ourselves, what does the Scripture say? Now, let me admit, of course, that we will still arrive at times at faulty interpretations because of our own predispositions and because of our own fallenness, but this is still our very best protection. What does the Bible really say? Using a grammatical historical method of interpretation, our thinking as Christians, must always be shaped by what Scripture teaches using the right hermeneutic text in Romans that we come to this morning. Let's read it again together. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, these two hinge verses, the hinge between all the explanation of the gospel in the first 11 chapters and the application of the gospel in the chapters to come. Here's what Paul writes, Romans 12 verses 1 and 2. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect." Paul says your only reasonable response to the gospel that you have received and believed and been saved by is to give yourself body and soul to God. It's a call for radical, total commitment to God. Now, we're learning here that Paul provides two insights into this, this commitment we're called to make. First of all, the grounds for a life of total commitment to God are in the first half of verse 1, and the main point is because of the mercies of God that you have received in Christ. I went back and listed all of those mercies that are revealed in the first 11 chapters, and on, on the basis of those mercies, you are called to commit yourself entirely to God. Then, secondly, we learned of the demonstration of a life of total commitment to God. That's the middle of verse 1 through verse 2. Paul uses the language of Old Testament sacrifice to call us first, present your body to God. That's verse 1. We looked at that in great detail. Present your body as a living sacrifice. Secondly, you are to present your mind to God, and that's the point of verse 2. The sacrifice we owe God in response to His salvation is not only our bodies, but it is our minds as well. Now, verse 2 has just one basic exhortation about our minds, but it's expressed as two commands, a negative command about how we are not to think, do not be conformed to this age, and a positive command about how we are to think the rest of verse 2. Now, last time we examined the command about how we're not to think, we must reject the thinking of our age. That's the point of the negative command that begins verse 2. Reject the thinking of our age. Do not be conformed to this world. 
Conformed means to form something according to a pattern or a mold. And as I pointed out to you, the word world here in Greek is actually the word age, a word that often describes the world as it exists at a particular point in time, a period of time and its mindset, like we use the expression in English, the age of the Enlightenment or the age of industrialization. Every age, including ours, is dominated by certain ideas and philosophies. And we saw last time that Satan is the one who controls that mindset, that worldview, that zeitgeist. So Paul says, don't allow your thinking to be conformed or to be shaped by the spirit of the age in which you live, the prevailing thoughts, philosophies, and opinions of your time. And, and last time, we examined some of the prevailing ideas and philosophies of our time. We looked, for example, at naturalism. We looked at humanism. We looked at Marxism. We looked at postmodernism. And Paul says in his negative command at the beginning of verse to reject the thinking of your age. Reject those isms and every other ism that doesn't line up with the Word of God. Now, today we come to the second half of the verse where we discover the positive command about how we are to think. Paul tells us we must embrace the will of God. Not only are we to reject the thinking of our age, we must, on the other hand, embrace the will of God. Let's look at it together. Notice, first of all, the command, the simple command in two words, be transformed. Look again at verse 2, do not be conformed to this world, there's the negative side, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The Greek word that's translated but here is not the normal Greek word for but. There are a number of words in, in Greek that can be used as an adversative. This one is a very strong one. In fact, it's the strongest adversative that's known in Greek. Not this, but this on the other hand. It implies that there are only two alternatives, that your thinking will either be shaped by the mindset of the age or it'll be shaped by the Word of God, and those are the only two options. There are no independent thinkers. I made that point last time. You know, we like to think of ourselves as independent thinkers, but Paul says that's not true. It's either going to be the thinking of the age or it's going to be God's thinking. Now, the Greek word for transformed is a word that you will recognize because it's been transliterated out of Greek into English. It's a word we use in English. The Greek word is metamorpho you recognize the English word metamorphosis. In the sense in which this Greek word is used here, it means, according to the leading Greek lexicon, to change inwardly in fundamental character or condition, to be transformed, to change inwardly in fundamental character or condition, to be transformed. Now, the way we use this word most often in English is to describe a simple process that we've illustrated from for our children, the metamorphosis of a caterpillar into a butterfly. A number of years ago, there were some, some guys who used to do the Moody Science films who produced a documentary titled Metamorphosis, and, and I like the way they describe what goes on in that process. Listen to what they wrote. The transformation from caterpillar to chrysalis to adult butterfly defies Darwinian evolution through random variation and small gradual steps. In fact, 
Some evolutionary biologists have called the process of metamorphosis butterfly magic. That's not surprising given that inside the chrysalis, the cells of the caterpillar break down into a chemical soup. Then new cells, butterfly cells, form from the molecular components. In just a few days, these cells are reassembled into an adult butterfly that has virtually no resemblance to a caterpillar. Folks, that is metamorphosis. And Paul is saying here that God's plan for you is to experience that same kind of radical change in your moral character. He wants you to be transformed. Now, we can observe a couple of other things about this verb, be transformed. First of all, in Greek, it's in the present tense, which makes it clear that this transformation is not something that happens in a moment of time. It's not like a second blessing, something you get in a crisis moment after salvation. Rather, this is an ongoing process, this transformation, this metamorphosis. In fact, we could translate it this way, continue being transformed. And again, as it was with the word conformed in the first half of the verse, this Greek verb transformed is passive. It means that you are not the doer of the action. You are not the transformer. We don't produce the transformation, but we must be transformed. That is, we must cooperate with the one who actually accomplishes the transformation, in this case, the Holy Spirit. So, there's, there's going to be, there needs to be, there must be, as a result of your salvation because of the mercies of God, there must be a radical, gradual transformation, a metamorphosis in you. And notice, that's accomplished by the Spirit. You ready for this? Because of what happens in your mind. Notice in verse 12, the means by which this metamorphosis takes place. The means is by the renewing of your mind. Be transformed. Be radically changed in character by the renewing of your mind. Now, there are a couple of observations we can immediately make that run absolutely counter to contemporary Christianity. First of all, this means that the Christian life is not primarily about emotion. It's not about how you feel or even what you experience. Rather, it is fundamentally about how you think. Now, I'm not saying there's no emotion involved in the Christian life. Of course, you're a, you're a being that, that experiences emotion. God made you to experience emotion. But emotion must always be the caboose of the Christian life and not the engine. Emotion follows what you know, what you think. And here he says, you're transformed not by an emotional experience, but by the renewing of your mind. This also means, by the way, that the Christian life is not primarily behavior. Christians don't live like they do simply because the Christians around them live that way. Paul says for us to be radically changed in character, to experience a metamorphosis, our minds must be renewed. There must be a change in the way you think about absolutely everything. If I can put it this way and not be disrespectful, God intends to reprogram your mind. That's what Paul is saying. Believers simply don't think like unbelievers. 
In fact, let me stop here and say this is a test. I was reminded recently by Lloyd-Jones that when he was growing up in the church and he was not a believer, he said the pastors always assumed that everybody was a believer, and they never challenged him. They never challenged his faith, although he was an unbeliever. So I don't want to be guilty of that. So let me just say to you, here there is a test for you to discern whether or not you're truly in Christ. Do you find yourself constantly agreeing with the thinking of the age, but disagreeing with what the Bible teaches? Do you find yourself routinely saying, I don't agree with what the Bible says, and finding yourself agreeing instead with what the world says? If that's routinely true in your life, there's a serious problem with your faith because that's not how Christians are. We are in the process of having our minds changed to think like God thinks. Here Paul doesn't explain to us exactly how this transformation, this renewal takes place, this renewing of the mind. The transformation happens through the renewal of the mind, but how does the renewal of the mind take place? Well, he doesn't explain it here, but he does in Ephesians 4. Turn over there with me. Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 17, Paul talks about the fact that we no longer live and think and act like pagans because we have been redeemed. We have been changed. He says, we just don't live like they live anymore. We don't think like they think. Verse 20, you did not learn Christ in this way. If indeed you have heard him, that's, that's a reference to when you heard Christ calling you through the gospel to believe in him and have been taught in him. That's the ongoing discipleship Christ gives to us through his word. So you have both salvation here and ongoing growth. He says, just as the truth is in Jesus, and here's what you've been taught. Verse 22, that in reference to your former manner of life, you should lay aside. The Greek word is, is put off like clothes the old self. What he's saying is, you have been changed. You're not the person you used to be. You're a new creation in Jesus Christ. Take off the clothes that belong to the old person. That is the patterns of thinking and behaving and acting like you used to. They don't fit the new person you are. Take them off. And then verse 24, put on the clothes that are in keeping with the new person you have become in Christ. The new patterns of thinking, the new patterns of behaving which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Now, notice I skip verse 23. In the middle of this passage, talking about how we are sanctified, you have to put off the, the clothes that belong to the old person you were. You have to put on the clothes that belong to the new person you are. In between that is the key, verse 23, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Now, notice again Paul's language very carefully. You are not told to renew your own mind. Instead, you are told to be renewed, passive. You are to allow someone else to renew your mind. The implication here is obviously that only God can do this work. But you have to be renewed. It's a command as well. And so the implication is that while only God can produce this renewal, you can either hinder that renewal or you can promote and encourage it. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part seven of his current series, Your Only Reasonable Response to the Gospel. Tom will have part eight for you on our next program. 
and we do hope you'll join us then. But before we leave you today, here's Tom with some closing thoughts. Tom? You know, it's so important, Bill, that we understand that while the Bible has been misused in the name of the Christian faith, and it has hurt the reputation of the gospel, at the same time, the truth of God's Word, properly interpreted, can stand against any attack. It is able to answer the questions that are posed. It can deal with any honest questions that come at it. And so don't be afraid of entering into a discussion with those who stand opposed to our faith and understand that ultimately the Word of God has the answers. It always has and it always will because it is God's truth in every word. Thanks, Tom. And friend, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. We'd love to hear your story and how God is enriching you in your walk with Christ through this ministry. Write to us, won't you? Our email address is listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Again, that's listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Or you can call us at 1-877-577-WORD. That's 1-877-577-WORD. The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do so by visiting thewordunleashed.org. That's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. We thank you for listening. The Word Unleashed exists because God, in His Word, has given you every spiritual resource you need to grow in Jesus Christ. It's our prayer that the power of God's Word be unleashed in your life.